Today's episode of History Obscura has been presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you and me to monetize our podcasts. Providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so we always know how much we're going to get when we include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o. Tell them History Obscura sent you. Chapter 6 The priest began his song immediately, as one whose well-known tale needs no thinking out. He was no poet, and did not speak in verse, but his theme, which had been smoldering in him while the others held forth, burst into such a fire when he freed it, that he declaimed rather than spoke, letting the sounds billow from his huge body while ever and again he marked a surge in his feelings by plucking at the harp. He was so sure that everything he said was as right and just and beyond doubt as the open sea, and he said it all so loudly that his listeners found it hard to keep from agreeing with him, though their own interest ran the other way. Even when he mocked their deepest belief, calling it the evil cant of heathendom, they sat like a group bewitched, helpless before the triple charm of great faith, great sound, and the great danger they wanted to learn about. The way he chose to tell them of the king, whose shadow was falling across their lives, was as the life story of a little boy who grew up fighting against many foes. It was their own kind of life, made of weapons, magic, frenzy, pillage, and the letting of blood. Wherefore they listened, with very personal understanding, as often for Olaf as against him. He was born in a swamp. So Threobrand began the story. Whither his mother had fled, and none but the stars and God looked down on Trigve's royal son. In grim silence, Astrid suffered the birth pains. She granted herself neither moan nor murmur, for Earl Hakon's men and hounds were hunting them. Hakon would remember that silence twenty-five years later and copy it when Olaf's men and hounds hunted him, as he hid in the pit beneath the pigsty. Astrid taught her son that the sky rests on the shoulders of the four dwarfs, along with other heathen blasphemy, for mother and son were unbaptized still, and had the boy died in the caves or forest where his childhood passed, he would never have known heaven. She also taught him that he was the great-grandson of Harold Fairhair, and the son of Trigve, whom she called the rightful king, having yet to learn that only God's church can make a king rightful. She taught him the name of the man who had killed his father, and the name of the man who told him to do it, Hakon, whom the heathen still call Hakon the Good, but whom the good now call Hakon the Heathen. And she taught him vengeance, though it is the Lord's, and who the friends were, in hall or cottage, who one day might help him have it. This land is yours she said. Every stone and tree and house and farm and cow and man and shrub, all things that walk or fly or crawl or swim beneath the water or breathe below the sky, all are yours to help, to hinder, to nourish or to kill, according as the wind strikes you, because you are my son and because I married as I did. All this she told him, and he believed it, believing also, 
alas, the impious reasons why she said it was all his. To that vain and ungodly teaching of hers can be traced, I think, a certain rude way that Olaf has, though he tries to conquer it now, of rushing to seize that which he wants. He shouts, it is mine and I will have it, where another, who has learned the virtue of tact, will advance his claim more gently as a river eats away its banks. For their sin of human pride, they were punished. God sent pirates to that shore, who seized them and sold them as slaves in distant lands. Olaf never saw his mother again. But the things she had taught him were carved upon his soul. He remembered them when he was a slave in Estonia, twelve years old. He remembered them when he poured his master's ale or fenced his master's field. And he remembered them one day in the marketplace, when he heard a man called by the name that was the name of his father's murderer. He has often said that what he did then, he did without thought or plan, because it seemed the thing to do, the thing that must be done, by himself, then and there, on the instant. He seized the man's own axe, and with a strength beyond his years, he split him from crown to chin, so that the man fell like a dead tree. There was a great outcry at this, that a slave had slain a bonder, and the people were for hanging him at once. But he set his back against a wall, the bloody axe in his hands, and faced them with determination insisting that he was a king and merited the high justice, not the low. Many thought him drunk or demented, but others were struck by his bearing, feeling that no one would dare make such a claim unless there were a reason back of it. So he was taken for judgment before the king of Novgorod, named Valdemar. To everyone's surprise, King Valdemar did not ask why the boy had been brought before him, but scanned his features sharply, looking at him from this side and from that, saying nothing but seeming to make up his mind by Olaf's looks alone, which, as the onlookers began to see, resembled the king's own. At last King Valdemar spoke, and his words have been made into a song which everyone in Norway knows. Your face and mine are one, and each is like the other, for you are Astrid's son, and I am Astrid's brother. From that time on, Olaf was under King Valdemar's protection, and all men were forbidden to do him injury, under threat of heavy punishment. Olaf should have given thanks for that miracle, for miracle it was, sent to prove that only heaven could help him. But he was so deeply sunk in arrogance, he thought it merely proved his kin were kings everywhere, seated on thrones by their very nature, as a tree puts forth roots. King Valdemar encouraged this belief, sharing it with him and scheming how Olaf might capture his kingdom of Norway. He had famous champions teach him the arts of war, and the many exercises that make the body strong. Olaf had the tall, long-boned frame of his great-grandfather, Harold Fairhair, and he surpassed everyone in strength and the courage to use it. He had, moreover, a fearful determination to be first in everything, as if a demon possessed him. He could throw two javelins at once and make both hit the mark. He climbed up the side of a great mountain they called the Smalsmahorn to rescue a friend who tried to reach the top but lost courage halfway. Olaf ran up to him like a goat, carried him to the summit with him, left his shield hanging there to prove he had done it, then carried his friend down to the ground in safety. He could run along the oars of a ship that was being rowed through the water without so much as getting his feet wet. He has never lost these arts, 
He is today the most redoubtable man in Norway. There was another kind of knowledge that Valdemar would let no one teach him but himself. This was a store of tricks and methods by which a king gets what he covets and keeps what he lays hands upon. The thing they both wanted was the dream of every heathen ruler, to have his kingdom endure through eternity for himself and his heirs. It was a hopeless quest while they remained heathen, for eternity is given only by God to his own elect. Nonetheless, Olaf and his uncle persisted. They studied how Charlemagne, king of the Franks, restored and ruled the ancient holy empire of Rome, when once he had the Rome's church beside him to proclaim his right divine, how the great Constantine had done so before him in Byzantium, and how Olaf's great-grandfather had failed through not seeking that kind of help. They planned not to make that mistake. As soon as Olaf was old enough, Valdemar arranged that he marry the daughter of King Burislav of Wendland, so that he might have wealth and an ally. Some said the bride was beautiful and that Olaf loved her, but if he did, it was with a demon love, for he spoke to her in a kind of strange, unholy poetry, likening her to Fricka, Freya, and Ran, and other filthy idols you call goddesses and sprinkle with bullock's blood. After they were married, and his wife was with child, Burislav deemed that Olaf's kingdom would be a lasting one, bequeathed to Burislav's own grandchild. So he gave him a fleet of ships manned with warriors with which to go and take it. Many secret friends of Olaf's father, who had been awaiting such a chance, joined him. It seemed to them he now had strength enough to get what he sought. But then, a second divine judgment fell upon Olaf. His wife died in childbirth, and her heathen infant with her. Who shall say it would have happened so, had they been baptized Christians? For why should devil's spawn be loosed upon this world, to inherit and rule it? That is how it was whispered about by certain Irish slaves, who secretly had clung to their Christian faith to sustain them in their wretchedness. What they were saying was reported to Olaf, but instead of having them slain or tortured, he began to think soberly and deeply about the blow that had been dealt him. He has told me since, he wondered why those he loved were snatched away, and if indeed such a question had any answer. Wondering thus, he sailed with his fleet of ships, though no longer with an heir nor a wife to bear him another, nor, therefore, his father-in-law any longer for an ally. Little, indeed, that a king needs, he seemed now to have, as he sailed toward the place where God had stationed me, his unknowing, unworthy instrument, to await Olaf's coming. Now that Theobrand had brought the tale to where his own path crossed Olaf's, he deliberately paused, apparently to drink his ale, but really to consider what progress he was making. As he lifted the horn to his lips, his arm was the only thing in the room that moved. Every bonder sat, watching him drink, waiting. He noticed that they breathed as one, in and out, in and out, all at the same time. It could be heard. There was one person present who had been on Theobrand's side from the start, whose eyes could not have left him even if their owner had wished. His hostess, Helga, watched his slightest move and look, like one in the spell of a troll. She moved her lips with his, shaping them to the words he said, taking quick, sharp breaths when his voice or face shifted from one emotion to another. The meaning of what he said went by her unperceived, but she drank the sound in. What she saw 
was neither priest nor ambassador, but only this huge, handsome man who could keep his temper and lose it at the same time, and whose thoughts, even when he spoke them most softly, had so much frenzy in them. And there were the thralls. He had seen them watching as they passed about, serving meat and drink, then listening furtively in the shadow beyond the doorway. There was a gleam in their faces, though they tried to dissemble it, a vague hope that somehow their life was going to be lightened through the power of this new god before whom all were equals. Turker came toward him to refill the ale horn as he set it down. When he was close by, Turker crossed himself in such a way that only Theobrand could see it. The slaves and a woman are Christians in their hearts, the priest told himself. Olaf will win a victory here. With strengthened faith, he resumed his tale. I dwelt in a cave in the furthest of the Skilly Islands, where I mortified my flesh and lived upon scraps of food brought to me by pious fisherfolk whom I had baptized. Perhaps their piety was not of the best. They may have looked on me as one more idle, whom they might as well placate, of which they had many. Whatever their reasons were, they held me in a kind of awe and often asked me to pray for the safe return of their boats. More than once, those prayers were answered. Then I began to have influence. Not only my prayers were sought, but also my advice. There was a Christian bishop in those islands named Sigurd, a saintly man who had been to Rome, where he was highly thought of and entrusted with great and noble work. I had been a servant in his house, working as a groom in the stable. He, it was, who taught me what Latin and other knowledge I have, and looked with favor on my wish to live a simple and holy life. He took a certain pleasure in helping me find a cave to live in, and often came to visit me there. After a time, during which he made sure that my zeal never abated, he gave my preaching heaven's sanction by ordaining me a priest. Then my cave became a kind of little church, while an ampler one was built by my pious fisherman, stone by stone, for the glory of God. He it was, too, who gave me the name I bear. It had been Thangbrand, a heathen name belonging to my grandfather. Bishop Sigurd christened me Theobrand which in the sacred language of scripture signifies brand of God. He prayed that I might always burn with a sacred flame. Once or twice, I felt that he found me somewhat amusing, but this suspicion was placed in my mind by Satan, and I crushed it. Very early one morning, before the sun was out of the ocean, he honored my humble cave church with an unexpected visit. By the tight look of his brow and lips and the hasty way he had donned his robe, I saw that a very great matter had brought him. Prepare now, brand of God, he said. You have a mission to perform far beyond the reach of most men. If you fulfill it well and truly, you will save more souls then a path has stones, or a fish has bones. Trigvi's son has landed here with a fleet of ships. His men want food and water and other lusts of the flesh. But Olaf is sad and thoughtful, a lonely man who only wants advice. He has heard of you. With that, the bishop gave me such a look that I felt as if the great hand that shaped the world were laid upon my shoulder. Let me be given more than human strength, I cried, so I may save his soul. It were better that one lost sheep. A sheep, the bishop interrupted me, that will lead countless others into the fold. Let us see how you may be given that more than human strength you crave. He remained there with me for hours, 
instructing me in my task, though it kept him from his meditations, so great was his zeal for one man's salvation. I was amazed at the endless pains he took and the vast store of knowledge he drew upon and freely gave. He told me how Olaf envied and admired the two great kings, Constantine and Charlemagne. He told me the kind of man Olaf was, what things he loved or hated or sought or avoided or said or knew or even dreamed, all of which had been gathered from so many different places and put together so carefully and skillfully that I knew Olaf before I ever saw him. Lastly, he made me truly see how vast was the good I might achieve, which I had scarcely glimpsed, though my vanity had been telling me I saw it wholly. He said there should be a thousand church steeples pointing the way to heaven. Above scores of the devout, kneeling as they received the word, this I might bring about. I, who had been content to sit in my cave and meditate about the next world, never thinking to help mend this one. Such a chance has been given to few men since Adam wasted his. When my bishop had raised me to this degree of understanding, we knelt together and prayed for me to have that strength far beyond my own which I needed so desperately. At once it crept into my limbs and tingled in my blood. When Bishop Sigurd left me, I felt an exaltation, a clarity, a purpose which nothing shall ever diminish. When Olaf entered my cave, as the bishop had prophesied he would, his appearance impressed me, even though I had been so well prepared for it. He is immensely tall, strong, and handsome, and must indeed resemble his great-grandfather, who is said to have looked like that. I understood, as my bishop had told me I would, why many ignorant people were ready to believe that Olaf was one of their own gods, come to rule them on earth. How great is the power of prayer, how boundless! The thoughts I had hoped to implant in his mind were already there. He was thinking about the Christian life, although, since he was a heathen, he thought about it for the wrong reasons. But there it was, nonetheless like the thoughts of my half-believing fisherman, ready to grow into a great, verdant tree of faith. I cannot truly say I baptized Olaf. It was rather as if he baptized himself. He began speaking at once, as if grudging the loss of an instant. You are Theobrand, the Christian troll, are you not? he asked. I am Theobrand, the Christian priest, I answered, somewhat angrily, not liking the common jibe that the two are in some way the same. Troll or priest, he said impatiently, you are a Christian, and Christianity is what I want to know about. It is the light that shines upon the world, I began, but he stopped me with that inelegant directness of which I complain. Save that kind of breath, he said, to cool your food and warm your flock. There are certain things I want, and if this church of yours can get them for me... Then it was I who stopped him, thinking to humble him towards what he spoke of so bloodlessly. That church, I said, can do many things, and all of them by faith. He turned to go, scornfully as if from a quest which he had feared from the start would be fruitless. So I quickly added, And it knows many things. It knows what you want and who you are, Olaf Trygvason. He turned instantly and eagerly, like one who hears a longed-for signal, and cried, So you've been waiting for me as I thought. Then let us have no delay and no pretense. Cast your line, priest of fishermen. Your fish is willing to be caught if you throw me the bait I like. His manner made me writhe inwardly. He treated me so like a huckster that I almost felt like one. 
There are so many ways of saying things that he might have chosen another. But I remembered my duty, held my temper in, and let him speak on. He told me he had heard many things concerning me, and had formed his own notion besides. I cannot say he was wrong, except that his devils made him think I had devil's reasons for all I might say or do. He agreed with everything I urged upon him, but he agreed like a heathen, agreeing with another heathen. When I offered him forgiveness for his sins, he assented indifferently, saying he would as lief not have his deeds held against him. When I threatened him with hellfire, he admitted it was a great pain to be burnt, which he would like to avoid if he could. And when I promised him the peace that passeth understanding, he cried out in a very agony of longing that he wanted that above all, but could never have it while his other wants were unfulfilled. I must have my kingdom, he cried. Everything else eludes me like a wraith in a snowstorm, but my kingdom at least I shall have, and keep it too, if you will help me. With that, he stepped close to me and gripped my arms with such fury that I thought he had become berserk, and I must fight for my life. You have your church's ear, he said fiercely. Tell them to help me. I will pray your prayers and ring your bells and stuff more souls down your throat than you can swallow. Earls, bonders, thanes, thralls, myself and the very cattle, if you like. Not one shall refuse if I set my hand to it. But there must be this for that, with both sides gaining by it, or no bargain ever yet was kept. My anger rose again at the base word, but he rushed on, prodded by whatever was inside him, so that I had no time to shape the smallest sound. I know how Constantine was helped, and Charlemagne too, and what they gave in payment. We can trade in the same coin and make it work as well with no need for either of us to speak from the side of the mouth. Give me a divine right to be Norway's king, and I will give you a royal right to be Norway's church. There, clear is clear and plain is plain, and the answer can be yes or no. I saw it was a greater task than I had thought to make our minds see the same thing in the same manner. I began to wonder, whether it might not be well to agree outwardly to what he asked, seeming on his own blasphemous terms, while secretly having faith that he would one day do things for the right reasons. He suddenly made up my mind for me. He seized my wrist, dipped my hand into the holy basin, and shook drops of water onto his own head, like the wind shaking a wet oak leaf. Say your spells! he shouted. I said the sacred words that exercise evil spirits and make a man a Christian. When it was done, he gave a grunt of satisfaction. There is your first soul, he said. Come with me now and you shall have a thousand more. I hesitated to follow him. Stepping outside my safe cave would mean being hurled into a life of perilous action. It was easy enough to speak learnedly, even ardently, of great dead kings, but actually to help Olaf take their path was another matter. They knew the traps that beset a conqueror's feet. Perhaps I should study further before taking action. Olaf guessed my doubts and laughed at me more heartily than I thought such an unfrolicsome man could laugh. Oh, you of little faith! he mocked. Are you afraid to see things come to life that you have helped beget? He shamed me with the challenge, and I followed him, humbled at his showing me my duty. I had been wrong in doubting. The strange thing about a heavenly plan, which surprises and rewards the faithful, is how simple it is in the carrying out. Of course, it was a miracle, but oh! the rapture of taking part in a miracle. In fairness, though, it should be said 
that the quick way it was all accomplished was largely owing to that same vulgar directness of Olaf's that so made my skin creep. He waited not an instant to make good his pious boast about the thousand souls. As I followed him down the hill toward where his host was encamped, we saw a man walking alone who showed by the way he came forward to greet Olaf that he knew him. Here is our first convert, said Olaf. His name is Boli. He is a great bonder with a hundred thanes and thralls. Let us save his soul. With that, he seized Boli by the throat and forced him to his knees. Boli would have had no chance against him, even were he not surprised, and Olaf held him thus with one hand, while with the other he drew his sword. Choose now, Boli. Shall I make you Earl of all Norwegian land within ten miles of Nidaros? Or shall I thrust this sword down your gullet and spear out the salmon you ate last night? The earldom, of course, replied Boli, watching sword point. But surely there is some favor I must do in return for so great a gift. Nothing big enough to boggle at, said Olaf. Merely that you became a Christian and acknowledge me as your divinely appointed king, along with my heirs, forever. Boli gulped, and I thought he meant to fight. He rolled his eyes upward towards the sky, seeming to weigh the reward that might be his, both hereafter and here. Agreed, he said, and I baptized him. Boli swore fealty to Olaf. This he did in the names of both his old gods and his new, and gave his word besides, which I knew he would never break, because he was a bonder. He rose to his feet and drew a breath down into his very toes, as if he had not expected to taste air again. Is it not a great comfort to have eternal life? asked Olaf. Any kind will do, answered Boli, feeling his windpipe where Olaf had squeezed it. But I would feel more comfort still when I return home if a few others shared this eternity with me. That is easily managed, said Olaf. Where is Hawksgold? Sleeping, said Boli. The two of them took sword in hand and sought out Hawksgold who was quickly baptized and made to swear fealty to Olaf. Three brothers named Floki, Dag, and Gunlaug were the next to whom we brought the word. They drew their swords, and for a moment it seemed that they might stand Olaf off long enough to alarm the camp, for it was three against three. But I got behind one of them, seized him, and turned the tide of battle so that they were soon disarmed whereupon they accepted baptism and Olaf as their king. After that, we decided to be more patient and convert them one at a time. In that way, our numbers grew steadily larger with heathen bonders being transformed into Christian earls. When at last, very few were left and very few earldoms left for them, that few accepted the faith as a group. Then all had been saved, up to the number of thirty. But Boli's faith was too new to him to be the prop it should. There are still our thousand men, he said. They cannot all be earls, nor can the thirty of us master them by force. Glancing towards me, he added, Although our strength now be doubled. Olaf was quick with his reply. There are both slaves and free among them, he said, and I know that most of the slaves are already secret Christians, dreaming of an eternity in which they are to be our equals. They will be on our side against any who choose to remain heathen. Some grumbled at this, doubting the wisdom of letting a slave think, even once, that he might raise his hand against any of his masters, be they heathen or not. 
But we were risking so much by then that this extra risk was taken. The thousand were summoned to a thing to be held the next morning and bidden to bring their wooden image of Thor with them onto the plain. Rumors of what was afoot spread through the camp during the night, and Thor's worshippers placed food before him to make him strong for the next day's conflict. When morning came and he was wheeled to the thing, we saw that they had smeared him all over with fat so that his gold and silver ornaments shone brightly. They made a great show of bowing to him very low. Olaf came to the point at once, which proved to be the right way to go about it, though no one else would have thought of doing it like that. He told them Thor was a false idol, and they must bow only to God. He said nothing more, just that much, and said it with the air of one who has just passed a law. But one among them, Dala Gudbrand by name, whom they seem to have made their spokesman, opposed Olaf with equal readiness. Where is this god of yours? he asked in a voice of scorn. It seems to me he's hiding because he is afraid Thor will see him. Let him show himself if he dare, as Thor does. Let the two gods face each other. Many said that would be a fair test, and there was much laughing when a moment passed and Thor was still the only god they saw. This was a blow to us, for we had counted on everything except to be laughed at. But Olaf pointed suddenly at the sky, where the sun was coming out from behind a cloud and cried out, There comes our god now, looking at us with one of his great eyes. Is there one of you who can meet his gaze? Thor can meet it, replied Dala Gudbrand stubbornly. And truly Thor's wooden face was staring back at the sun without flinching and seeming to gleam fiercely. In point of years, I was but a newly Christian, and a chill of old heathen fear crept back into my heart as the god I had once worshipped glared at the one for whom I had forsaken him. Demons tempted me, chanting in my brain that I had chosen wrongly. Nor was I alone in my agony of spirit. All about me my recent converts sweated and doubted. Olaf restored our belief. He seized an axe, and pausing no longer than when he had split his father's slayer, he split Thor. The two halves crashed to the ground with a hollow, booming sound that frightened away the trolls who were beguiling us. Thor looks upon our god no more, cried Olaf, and spat upon the fallen demon. Can any of you make our god as sightless as Thor is now? None of the heathen moved, all being shamed, but there came a sound from within Thor's burst body as if he were dying. Olaf turned one of the halves over with his axe, and rats ran out, as big as small dogs. This is where the meat has gone which you laid before him said Olaf with his loud laugh, in which we all began to join, glad of a chance to set our feelings loose. With the laugh thus turned the other way, the matter was decided. We stripped the gold and silver from Thor and made a fire with what was left of him, around which we had a great feast to celebrate a thousand new baptisms. I gave thanks for the good food and ale and preached a sermon to my huge new flock, in which I showed them how right it is to have a god who rules forever in heaven, and his appointed king who rules forever here. When I finished, they cried Amen, and a skald made a song in which he asked God always to save the king. Olaf gave him a piece of gold because the song pleased him, and handed me a smaller piece of gold to give him also, to show that I, too, was pleased, and that my approval as well as his must always be sought. Then everyone sang the song together. 
I felt very humble. I saw that an ageless, mighty plan was being followed, against which nothing can stand. It was clear that my small part of it was to join my lot to Olaf's, at whatever hardship to myself. So, when he set sail for Norway, I sailed with him, my bishop's blessing on my head, the book in my hand, and a sword at my side. Now that a thousand and thirty of us had the same zeal, our task grew easier and its fulfillment quicker. At each place where we beached our ships, the same thing happened in the same manner, except that it took less and less time as word about us spread. First, we would convert the bonder or the herser, and after him, his men. From the top downward, it was always done, from God, through the king, through the earls, to the people. A mighty pyramid reaching from earth to heaven, forever kept from crumbling by the servants of the church. Conversion became easier still when Olaf let it be known that he would not harry or pillage any who took the true faith. Another cause was the fearful lesson he taught to the few who resisted. There was, for example, a Viking named Raud, famed for his strength and stubbornness, who swore he would never take Olaf's god for his, nor Olaf for a king. Raud was said to be a wizard, and many thought he had spells to make Olaf helpless. But one night, after Raud had been drinking heavily, we stole upon him while he slept, bound him to a beam, and asked him whether he would be baptized. He refused, with hideous blasphemies. Then Olaf put a piece of wood between his jaws to hold his mouth open, and tried to make a poisonous adder crawl inside. Raud blew so strongly with his breath that the adder turned back. But Olaf was not to be turned from his purpose as the snake had been. He placed the small end of his hunting horn between Raud's teeth and put the adder in the horn. Then he burned the adder's tail with a heated iron and it crawled down Raud's throat and ate its way out through his stomach. Raud screamed blasphemies until he died, but when the story got out, there were only a few who would copy his stubbornness. One such was Island Kalda, who boasted that his mother had been a troll. Many people believed it and went to him to have wounds cured or storms quieted or when some man wanted a woman to love him. Now they went to him to cause Olaf's death. He and his followers encircled Olaf's dwelling and called on all the trolls and weird things to cast their dooms and diseases upon him. But Olaf caught them at their devil's work. He had them bound to a rocky scary that juts up out of the water at low tide. He himself stood on the beach within their view. My god against yours, he called to them. Put all your spells upon me. If I fall dead, I hereby order that you are to be set free. He waited while the tide rose ever higher about them. They shrieked their curses at him. Then they shrieked to him to spare them. By the time the water reached their faces, they were merely shrieking with no real words at all. Those who live near there have named the rocks the Shrieking Scary. They say they can still hear the sounds at high tide. God will not let them forget. The final proof to the gods of Valhalla that their day was done was the end of Earl Hacken, their champion. He sat smug and smiling when he heard Olaf had landed in Norway, saying to those about him, We are threatened by a baby born in a swamp who worships a baby born in a manger. There was much laughter at this. It was called Hakon's joke and retold from end to end in Norway. The laughter grew less as Olaf and the fame of his deeds became nearer. But Hakon made no move to defend himself. 
being unable to believe, after thirty years of ruling, that it could ever be otherwise. It was only when his closest friends were hastening to join Olaf, and the flames of Thor's temples lit the sky, that, too late, Hakon sent out the war arrow. None answered. His halls were empty, save for a slave named Kark, who sat in chains, waiting to be hanged for killing a freedman. Hakon promised him his pardon and his freedom if he would help him save his life, though if his need had not been so pressing, it is doubtful that he would have taken a slave's word. Kark led him to a pit beneath a pigsty where he kept things he had stolen, by which he hoped someday to buy his freedom. They jumped down into it, closing the opening above their heads with branches. There they waited, in darkness, silence, and filth, until they heard Olaf's men and horses tramping overhead. Olaf knew that Hakon must be hiding somewhere nearby, since no one for miles about had seen him leave. So there Olaf camped and waited, meaning to sit endlessly until hunger and thirst should drag Hakon out from wherever he was. I saw the look of unforgiving remembrance on Olaf's face, and dared to say to him that a Christian turns the other cheek to the foe who strikes him. He bared his teeth like a wolf and said, I must have this particular vengeance. Perhaps it will cleanse my soul. Then he let it be known that he would give a helmet full of gold to the man who brought him Earl Hakon's head. The two men in the pit heard it proclaimed. After that, the Earl and the slave watched each other for three days and nights. Neither of them dared to sleep, Hakon fearing that Kark would kill him, and Kark fearing to be killed because of Hakon's fear. On the fourth day, Kark feigned sleep to see what Hakon would do. Hakon crept towards him, either to see whether he was really asleep, or to be sure he slept forever. Whichever it was, as Hakon bent over him, Kark stabbed him in the heart, and Hakon's death scream was heard above by Olaf's men. They hauled Kark out by his hair, and Olaf made his word good by giving him a helmet filled with gold. Then he had him hanged for his old crime of having killed a free man, because Olaf did not want it thought that his was to be a lawless reign, with slaves daring to be more than God had meant they should. Now at last he had Norway, all of it, from top to bottom and side to side. No one dared resist him any longer, except a few wretches who fled to sea or to the icy wastes of Finland, whence they screamed vain prayers against Olaf to the unhearing air. Norway was his, wholly and undoubtedly, as his mother hoped it would be, held more tightly by him than even she had dreamed, because he had an ally beyond her imagining. He had said he wanted only his kingdom, to have peace in his soul. Why then is he still unsatisfied? Olaf has thought much about that, and about other things, so much that men say he is becoming a great sage as well as a great warrior and are repeating his words as the ancients repeated the words of Aristotle. God has so contrived our growth, says Olaf, that we are never the same when we finish a task as when we begin it. Olaf has a soul now, which he had not when he and his mother made their wish, and that soul will not let him rest while Norway is the only Christian land. Obscene idols are yet worshipped in Sweden, Finland, Denmark, and islands beyond the mist. God made them all, says Olaf, and back to God they must all be brought. To the devout, good works have no end. It has been revealed to Olaf that his kingdom must grow into a holy empire, 
united like those of Constantine and Charlemagne, under the great one sign. Heaven has decreed it so, and Heaven's warrior, Olaf, will carry out the decree. Icelanders, King Olaf sends this word to you, through me. He has looked upon the great task which is his to do. He sees where next he must plant the sacred seed, here in this land where, beyond all others, the soil of the spirit is like Norway's own. And it will be done in peace, as the Prince of Peace, whom Olaf serves, would wish. For Olaf cannot believe that the grandchildren of his own countrymen will, through stubborn pride, bring fire and death into their lovely island, so clearly ordained to be an outpost and sentinel of the Christian faith. He does not question your bravery, but neither does he question your good sense. You would find the odds too great, a thousand to your one, of men as brave as you. He has the mightiest fleet of ships the world ever saw to carry his thousands of men where he will. One of his ships is called the Crane. It is twice as long as any ship ever built before it. Another is called the Serpent, and it is twice as long as the Crane. Still another is called the Long Serpent. It is half again as long as both the others. And these three ships alone could carry more men than there are in Iceland, without his hundred others, all fully manned, all ready to sail, all awaiting his word. But Olaf has learned patience. He enjoined me not to hurry you. A hasty answer, Olaf says, has speed but not weight, which is bad in either ships or promises. He wants the mind, the heart, and the spirit to deliberate together, so that when they have agreed, they will answer as one. He wants you to think carefully, deeply, completely, to consider the full meanings of yes and no, with the blessings or ills that go with the one or the other. Then, when at last you see his great fleet of warships, with Olaf himself on the deck of the Long Serpent, he feels that your minds will have found truth and your souls peace, and you will welcome him joyously, prepared to join him in bringing light to other lands. That is all. I give you my thanks for the noble feast you have spread in my honor, and for the fine songs that have been sung for me. In return, I have tried to help enliven this night by telling the tale and bringing the message of Olaf, King of Norway by the grace of God. <laughs>